medical department only two go to the bench and we are more than a dozen. We don't train, we only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we're still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. I'm Darini, a member of the FMPA education team and your host for today's podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Matthew Buckthorpe. Matthew is an educator, applied researcher, and practitioner focusing on sports injury rehabilitation, prevention, and performance coaching. He has worked as a sport injury rehabilitation specialist and R&D specialist with the Isokinetic Medical Group. He has recently transitioned to academia, now as a senior lecturer in strength and conditioning and physiology at St. Mary's University, Twickenham. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today, Matthew. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So just expanding on from our brief intro, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to date? Yeah, of course. So I guess um, background was, yeah, I always wanted to be a footballer. So I guess back from a big kid, it was at a pro club as a, as a youngster. Always wanted to yeah, be a footballer, then wanted to go into coaching, then, you know, kind of settled for fitness coaching. And then I guess as I transitioned through my, my education, I did a sports science background, then did a master's um, at Loughborough, um, tiny bit of time in football, and then did a PhD in neuromuscular performance with, with Loughborough. And then a tiny bit more time in football. And essentially during that time, I just got more and more interested in around kind of late stage rehab. Um, and I guess that kind of gray area between sort of physiotherapy and sport, sports medicine and, and performance science. Um, so I uh, joined Isokinetic Medical Group around maybe 10 years ago. Um, my main reason initially was just to try and upskill around sports medicine, try to learn a little bit more around the earlier stages of, of, of injuries and injury rehab. Um, originally with a view of trying to transition back in towards performance science as, a, as an SNC coach. Um, but yeah, got more and more interested in rehab, particularly late stage rehab return to play. And just, yeah, continued kind of on that journey and was a rehab specialist for five or six years. Um, so sort of day to day working with the general public and, and uh, footballers, professional athletes, uh, delivering hydrotherapy, on-field rehab, SNC uh, rehab-based services to those players. And then transitioned into kind of an educational research role with Isokinetics. So joined their headquarters focused around um, service optimization, I guess. So they've got eight clinics. I was at one of them in London. Um, and then just focused for sort of four or five years just around supporting the optimization of the rest of the clinics. And yeah, kind of got quite interested in, in research. Always, always had a passion for research, had my PhD, but I guess experienced... Um, maybe a common theme that when I got into practice, I wasn't able to to actually do research. I find it incredibly hard to get to get access to data. So I started writing clinical commentaries, sort of educational style reviews, um, and then really got interested in that. And I guess that's kind of where my career has been, sort of focused more around, I guess, educational based research. And in the end, I found myself doing stuff pretty similar to what you would be doing in academia. Um, so two years ago, joined St. Mary's in a, in a teaching role, so sort of teaching research capacity, 
and uh, originally in sports rehab now in yeah physiology and snc um, so i guess that's yeah pretty much my journey i guess yeah it's, it's a really interesting journey to matthew and today's podcast is, is all about acl ruptures and more specifically rehabilitation and return to sport after acl reconstruction and this is a topic you're somewhat of, a, of an expert in and it was the focus of your presentation at the the recent isokinetic conference in leon so I guess the obvious first question for our listeners is, is why is this topic so important in elite football and why is an effective functional recovery process after ACL reconstruction so vital? Cool. Thanks. Um, yeah, I guess first one, I mean, when you're looking at injuries, you've always got to look at, most people will look at incidents of, of injuries, of course, and, and ACLs are not that common. Um, and you normally expect one ACL every two years on average for a 25-man um, 25 person professional team um, although higher in of course females but so you look at it and think it's not a very common injury but because of the length of the rehab process around about six to 12 months um, it actually constitutes quite a high proportion of total injury burden that teams will face so when we look at the total number of days lost ACL injuries do count towards quite a high proportion of that pretty similar towards hamstring injuries in terms of total time loss um, but they're probably more relevant in that people don't necessarily, players don't necessarily always get back to play. So still up to one in five people won't return back to play after, after an injury. It's higher, higher return to play rates in elite football. Those, those return to play rates were a lot lower for recreational athletes. Um, but for me, the more important bits are that professional elite footballers still have a high risk of secondary ACL injuries. So still one in five players will get a re-injury. Uh, Two-thirds of players won't be playing at the same level of play three years later, based on the UEFA injury group research. And also, you tend to see early onset of osteoarthritis in a lot of players as well. And given the fact that players have got really long careers nowadays, potentially playing up to the age of 40, um, if you don't have a good rehab process there, then, then the risk of early onset of OA and shortening that career is, is, is problematic. So I think, yeah... Getting players back to play is really important, but but we've got to look beyond that and make sure that when we've got a good functional recovery process. So when they do get back, they're not going to get re-injured. They're back at the same performance level and and we're protecting their kind of long-term joint health and, and career length as well. Sure. I guess because of this, you've, you've done a lot of work focusing on on-field rehabilitation after ACL reconstruction. So just to give us a bit of context, what did this work consist of? Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, obviously did a little bit around on-field rehab. So that used to be my main area of focus. So I obviously worked um, as an on-field rehab specialist as part of my job. Um, and what I really found at that point was this very little direction for people. There was very little published research. There's, there's virtually nothing in the literature around, around on-field rehab. There was a couple of nice papers but maybe not the most detailed so Bazzini had a, a nice paper with uh, Dave Hancock over at Chelsea that was probably one of the only really early ones in JRSPT and there was very little guidance for people so I was kind of doing the on-field job and yeah Isokinetic had this this good framework in place um, to provide some guidance but I was kind of doing the job thinking you know I had an element of uncertainty around what I was doing so for a number of years, I just tried to optimize my day-to-day -day job, reading the literature, trying to improve what I was doing. And, and then, yeah, kind of found that 
if I had this lack of certainty, I'm pretty sure a lot of other practitioners also would have this, this lack of certainty. And, and when you, you broaden that out to rehab as a whole, there's not that many published frameworks, at least there wasn't sort of 10 years ago in around sort of sports injury rehab. There's a lot more coming out now. But there's very little actual guidance on, you know, how and what to do as part of the rehab process. So um, a lot of my research, early research was was focusing around publishing clinical commentaries, education style reviews to give practitioners, I guess, um, a framework to work to um, trying to translate some of the research that had been done that maybe wasn't hitting in the day-to-day practice and just trying to translate that in and I guess easy to read formats for practitioners um, so yeah most of my research early on was clinical based commentaries reviews which I'm trying to top that up with some original research now um, initially I focused quite heavily around late stage rehab but then I kind of found that this is a running theme right the way throughout rehab that there's not that much guidance around the mid-stage of rehab there's very little guidance around the early stage so I guess over the last five years or so, I've broadened my, my focus a little bit more around the whole of the functional recovery process. So I've got sort of a number of papers in sports medicine around optimizing ACL rehab. I've got some stuff on on-field rehab um, in JOSPT and um, yeah, a couple of other clinical commentaries around specific topics for, for ACL rehab. So things around how do you cover hamstring strength? How do you cover quadriceps strength? I guess the, the, the challenging topics, I guess. Yeah. And Matthew, you talked about, you know, an uncertainty with rehabilitation after an ACL rupture. Can you give us some of the commonly overlooked or underrepresented factors that are relevant for return to sport and testing following um, an ACL reconstruction? Yeah, sure. So I guess, yeah, my probably my late stage return to sport training testing papers, a good read around this. So within that, I talk about, yeah, the number of factors that are missing. So firstly, um, focusing around neuromuscular performance. So I, I did my PhD around rate of force development, um, principally and neural adaptations to resistance training. But when I first entered a rehab environment, very few people even knew what rate of force development was. So we're doing a lot of studies around rate of force development and, and I'd try and chat to other practitioners and go, well, you know, how are you training rate of force development? And they weren't really aware of, of what it was, let alone how to, to develop it. And so um, the first bit is that on a neuromuscular performance level, lots of people in, in rehab, in medicine, typically focus more on maximal strength. And they typically focus maximal strength for the injured joint. So if you've injured your knee, they'll normally do maybe an isokinetic test, hamstring quadricep ratio. Um, but they don't normally think sort of distally and proximally and of the adjacent joints. So first bit is most, there's too much of an isolated focus on maximal strength. We also need to think of rate of force development, power, uh, reactive strength as, as, as a factor. So making sure we've got a more holistic focus on neuromuscular performance. Um, secondly, it's probably around movement quality. So that most of our movement assessments and most of our movement retraining processes are much more around like these pre-planned movement tasks so we're looking at how can people run how can they jump how can they land but that's only one element of movement yeah we need to make sure that we get some good movement patterns and so focusing on qualitative movement analysis during running jumping landing but we also need to focus on those sport specific um, movements as well so there's a big difference between pre-planned and reactive movements so you can have good kinematics and a pre-planned cut as soon as you move towards a reactive cut, so having to respond to a stimulus like you know cut right or left or respond to a player, you might not show the same movement quality. So if you're testing someone in a pre-planned cut, 
and then you ask them to go out in the field, you don't know that they this pre-prank cut um, actually translates to movement on the field. So we need to make sure that we're restoring their sport-specific movement qualities. So that's knowing that we can react to a situation, we can we can look at the environment and we can take the, 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 the contextual information and come up with the best movement solution, but we're not going to get shoulder barge and suddenly, you know, fall into a horrible position and, and re-injure our ACL, but we can manage that perturbation when jumping, cutting, changing direction. It's also the role of fatigue. So there's a tiny bit of research out there showing that ACL reconstruction patients move reasonably similar to, to normal controls, but actually when you fatigue them, they show much greater deficits in movement quality. So we need to know that they're moving well, both when fresh and fatigued. And then, so on that, most of our movement assessments is normally a single leg squat, and then maybe getting someone to, to do a single leg hop. And it used to be just for distance, but now there's good research, of course, showing that we need to look at the way people are landing, not just how far they land. But there's more to it than that. We need to make sure we're, we're looking at how they move under realistic contacts on the field as well. So I guess that's kind of the second piece. Um, the, the third bit is really around a lack of sport specific training. So typically people do their in-clinic rehab, you know, might do some plyometric training, might do some strength training, but then they try to go straight back into team training without doing enough sport specific retraining. So that's going on the fields, you know, doing, going through an on-field rehab plan, which I can chat about later, but there's not enough work done to, to bridge the gap between in-clinic and, and, and rejoining the team. Um, and so that's an emerging area around on-field rehab. And then within that as well, this kind of have players trained enough. So not have they just done an on-field plan, but have they done enough intensity and volume of training so that they're actually ready for the demands of, of team training? Um, and then one bit I quite like at the moment, which for most sport and exercise scientists will seem pretty, pretty standard, but within rehab, it's not really that mainstream is that, we're not doing any physical performance testing as part of return to sport testing. So most ACL testing is, is how far can you hop, you know, how good your knee, uh, stability tests, you know, maybe how strong is the hamstrings and quads. But we're not doing the same kind of needs analysis that we do within, within sport. So when players come and do a preseason, they do a preseason testing battery. And then we, we do a seven, six week preseason, we test them again. We don't seem to do that in rehab. So another bit is, is whether or not players have restored their fitness profile and they're actually ready to to not just cope with the demands of, of, of training and match play but they've they're they're able to excel in the sport and you know players invest years and years to become as strong and fast and, and as agile as possible we need to be restoring that as part of rehab as well and then i guess the final bit's really around psychology so have we focused sufficiently around readiness to return to to train um, and are we creating an environment that actually prepares players to be ready so when we start talking about psychological readiness, a lot of people think, okay, well, let's do a ACL return to sport index questionnaire. Um, and then, you know, if they're not ready, maybe we do some counseling and we, we ask them some questions. But for me, players are never going to feel ready unless you create an environment for them to practice what they're going to do when they go back and play. So that's really where on-field rehab comes in. It's about simulating a training environment so they're actually exposed to the things they're going to be doing when they're back. And so most players are psychologically not ready because they've not done tackling. They've, they've not done 1v1s. They've not been in a 3v3 situation. They've not had a knock on their knee yet. So they're just, until they have that first tackle, they're not going to feel ready. So all of these are contextual factors that are often not prepared for in rehab. So you can do all of the running, jumping, landing you want, but 
if you don't simulate the demands that players are going to go back to, they're not going to be psychologically ready. So I'm very much on a psychological readiness perspective. I think it's much more around setting the right environment for players to, to, to feel like they're, they're, they're there pretty much. Um, so I guess quite a, a long answer, but quite a few bits, in my opinion, that are typically missing. Um, I think there's a long way to go in order to optimize the rehab process, which is probably why I've spent so much time um, and published so much around the area because there are lots of points that we need to we need to focus on. And, and when I say this, it's, it's not an easy thing to do because if you're in a very small medical team and it's just one individual, maybe it's just one physio or it's just you know a doctor and a physio working together, it's, it's pretty hard to do all of these things. It's very hard to have the necessary knowledge and skill set to be able to, to deliver the whole process. Um, and so I say that these things are missing, but it's doing them all in practice is pretty hard. So that's why we need the right multidisciplinary teams typically to be able to, to be able to deliver these programs. Sure. That's, that's really interesting, Matthew. Um, and following on from this um, part of your work and what you kind of presented at the Isokinetic Conference in Neon was looking at the, at these four pillars of high quality on-field rehab following ACL reconstruction and also this idea of a, a five-stage on-field rehabilitation program following ACL reconstruction. Can, can you give us a bit of an insight into this? Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, obviously Leon's talk was around late-stage um, late stage rehab after ACL reconstruction. I, I tweaked my title a little bit initially because initially when people think about late-stage rehab, they think it's the final period. When actually late stage rehab is not the final period of rehab. There is a whole stage that comes after it, which is the return to sport continuum. And, and so the first point around my talk was, yeah, we need to think about having the right framework. So it's early, mid, late stage rehab. And then you've got this return to sport continuum that, that we need to really follow to make sure players are, are back. And on-field rehab fits as part of that continuum. Um, so we go from on-field rehab back to team training, then to return to competitive match play progressively and then finally back to back to performance and so on-field rehab is really the bridge between the in-clinic environment and back to team training and so I created the, the four pillars um, originally as part of kind of my professional development framework so I kind of wanted to know how can I become the best on-field rehab specialist um, that I can be. And so I wanted to really understand what skills do I need to develop in order to develop myself. So originally I kind of had this framework as part of my CPD program, but then um, when I changed roles in isokinetic, um, part of my role was focusing on how do I develop practitioners in, in on-field rehab? How can I develop on-field rehab practitioners? So yeah, I created the, the four pillars largely as an education program. And, and so how can I have education in each of these four pillars? And so the four pillars are, the first one's movement quality. So this is making sure that, that you're able to, to take someone who can run in a straight line um, at the start of on-field rehab, and then you can effectively transition back to being able to do the movements that are required in football, which are reactive change of directions, involving contact, decision-making, having to look at the environment with an external focus of attention, potentially under fatigue, high speeds, high velocities. So you've got all of these movement demands that, that they're not prepared for. They can run in a straight line. How are we progressively going to get them back to doing the movements that are required? Um, the second pillar is physical fitness reconditioning. So again, not just can they move well, but have we, are they prepared to cope with the demands and the intensity of team training? 
um, and match play. So can they cover the, the total distances? Have they done enough sprinting, enough change of directions? But not just the volume, but have they done them at the right intensities? So most of the time in the clinic, we can do some decels, but we can't necessarily do them at the right speeds. And so players need to be able to, to decelerate at say, you know, seven to eight meters per second squared. And, and most of the time in the clinic, we might be getting them at two or three meters per second squared. But unless we really get them at the right intensities and the right, the right physical workloads, then we're going to be struggling to, to get them back to play. So the second pillar is physical fitness reconditioning, making sure that, that within our on-field program, that we're providing a sufficient stimulus for aerobic development, anaerobic fitness development, but also neuromuscular development. We know that sprinting, sprinting is one of the best conditioning tools that you have for training the hamstrings. Um, so it's making sure that we're using cutting, changing direction, sprinting as a, as a, as a stimulus for, for neuromuscular adaptation as well. Um, the third pillar is skills, I guess, making sure that you're doing the right technical and technical tactical program. Um, the important bit around the skills bit is that one, you need the right person to be able to, to deliver a program. So someone who's delivering on-field rehab, you know, you can't just throw a player a ball and, and ask them to pass it back. You are going to have to have someone get involved to, to go through those technical exercises. Um, but also that there's only so much you can do as part of on-field rehab. Normally it's small group, one and one V1, one V2. Um, so it's recognizing its individual skills and its individual tactics. Um, player positioning, um, kicking, volleying, heading, 1v1s. Um, they still need to move into small group and team-based training as well. So that's why on-field rehab will never prepare someone for match play because it's too small in numbers. You need, you need your 6v6, your 7v7, 11v11s to be ready for match play. Um, and, and on that bit, for me, although getting a coach involved, you don't necessarily need the best coach in the world because the best coaches in the world are normally tactically the most astute. Um, but most of the stuff that you'd be doing as part of on through rehab is probably sort of level two, maybe, maybe coaching standard. You need to be able to do a lot of the technical based skills, a lot of the position based skills. So you don't need to be the best. You need to be a good coach, but not the best coach. Um, but the important bit there is making sure that players don't go back to training and they've not ran through all of those technical exercises. You know, they should have done volleying, they should have done shooting, they should have done crossing. Um, I've heard stories where players have gone back into training after doing no technical work. The first time they've gone to do a pass, they've just rolled their ankle straight away and they've, they've re-injured them because they're not used to doing those movements. Um, and then finally, it's just around, has the athlete trained enough to, to play, I guess, sort of load progressions and load volume. Um, so we focus a lot on training load within elite football um, we talk a lot about the acute chronic workload ratio and risk of injuries um, and obviously when someone gets injured after a long-term injury their their training volume is, is essentially zero when they enter the field so we've got to gradually build that back up and get them ready for the demands of team training and match play and and that's sort of where my my talk went into at Leon, sort of more focusing around the the have, have players trained enough to get back to to play in essence um, and within the five stages, the five stages is, is a progressive on-field program. Um, so stage one is, is linear-based movements. Um, essentially, ACL reconstruction, the most someone's done is probably run on a treadmill, hopefully done some plyometric training, um, maybe done a little bit of lateral landing and multi-directional plyometrics, but they won't, they won't really have done much more than that. So straight away, you can't take them into cutting 
because cutting is going to have a lot of transverse and frontal plane knee loads that we don't want to expose them to yet. So we start with some linear running and then we, we move into some multi-directional movements. So multi-directional movements is our second stage. So a progressive coordination program, really going from um, circle-based running, easy cutting, right the way through to um, high, you know, high speed changing directions, all pre-planned at the moment. So we notice the difference between pre-planned and reactive movements. So reactive movements is the third stage. So now you should be able to cut, change the direction, do every single movement at a good speed. But now we need to do it under a sport-specific context. So we, we do some reactive movement retraining. We, we expose them to fatigue in pre-planned movements. We introduce a ball a lot more. We get them to do all the tasks that they were doing before. Now we introduce a ball, an external focus of attention, and a skill. And then what we start to do is to gradually put all of those elements back together. And then we arrive towards um, um, football-based movement in period four. And then we, we basically do some training simulation in, in period five. And period five is just about mimicking the physical um, intensity of training and mimicking the, um, I guess, the environment. So 1v1 small group sessions, um, running through a lot of the stuff they would do as part of team training. And this is where, this is where it should look and feel like team training. Um, so yeah, I guess four pillars, five stages, um, drives a lot of the on-field rehab practices. Um, and I would say pretty similar for most injuries. Um, an ACL, you've got to be a lot more careful around multi-directional movements because of the transverse plane and frontal plane knee loads. Um, it's a little bit different, say, with a hamstring or with a, um, a, a soleus strain, where Soleus is going to be more about running loads. So, so some differences with each individual injury, but the framework pretty much stays the same across most injuries. That's brilliant, Matthew. Thanks very much. Um, plenty of, of take homes for all of us, and especially the the sports injury rehabilitation specialists listening amongst us. Um, and, and thanks very much for joining us today. Um, for our listeners, if you're interested in Matthew's work, we'll put the links up for any articles mentioned in the podcast. Um, so you can read it at your leisure. And if you enjoyed today, please subscribe to the FMPA on our Spotify and SoundCloud accounts, where you can listen to all of our podcasts. Alternatively, our podcasts are also available for free via the podcast section of the FMPA website. So thanks for joining us today, Matthew. Okay, thanks so much for having me. No worries. You've been listening to the Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. Have a great day.